I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moment of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax this Sunday with a little moment to yourself and the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Elvis. Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Brian Wilson was a musical genius and one of the greatest songwriters of all time. He caught melodies like they were waves. He bottled good vibrations like no one else. And he picked up bad vibrations too. He broke down. He tripped hard. He didn't just hear music. He heard voices. He tried to lose those voices by making a teenage symphony to God called Smile. But somewhere along the way, Brian Wilson lost his mind instead. This is his story. Rhonda Mawson here again, working through these archives of Brian Wilson tapes. It seems they're never-ending. There are so many here. The latest batch I've been going through and compiling seem to be from Brian at home. There's no dates on these, but they seem to be late 60s, perhaps early 70s. They all appear to have been recorded on a dictaphone in Brian's house. 
Some of them make more sense than others. There's some tapes where he just talks about his family, mainly his brothers. Others are song ideas. I'm not sure these are in any way usable for any type of official release, but they give us an interesting insight to what he was going through at the time. Two years ago, we were recording one of the biggest singles of all time. Now I'm here, alone. I spend most days in a bathroom. Spend most nights looking at the TV. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. Who am I supposed to be? I'm having trouble being myself at the moment. Some nights I dream as if I'm me. Other nights I'm Dennis or Carl or even my dad. Those ones are the scariest. I keep thinking about what has happened over the last few years. All those fights, all that money, all that blood on the tracks. Chapter 6 Brian Wilson isn't himself. Good evening. This is 105.4 BRIAN FM. There's some interruptions to our circuit tonight, so please bear with us. Service will resume as soon as possible. Keep it B-R-I-E-F-M. If you thought we were done with my dad, you were wrong. Look, I've been putting up with him for all these years, so you can shoulder some of that pain, too. By the time we got to 1968 and 1969, Smile felt like a lifetime ago. Hell, even Smiley Smile, the album we made after Smile, failed. That felt like a lifetime ago, too. That was the time in my life when the music took a back seat to everything else. Usually stuff like litigation. When you get big in the music industry, there's success that comes with it and money too. But with money comes money men and companies and contracts and agreements and lawyers. I was home one day in bed. I was in bed a lot those days. Sometimes I'd sit with the TV on static. I spend most nights looking at the TV. I don't know why. I found it comfortable, I guess. Someone told me years later that TV static is like the sound you hear in the womb. Looking at the TV. Maybe that was it. But I was home, just staring at the screen alone in my room, lost in that gray fuzz when my phone rang. It was our financial manager, Nick Grillo, on the other end. He'd been examining our royalty statements from Capital and had uncovered years of unpaid royalties. Have you ever been paid as the band's producer? He asked me. I don't know. Should I have been? Brian, Nick said, Capital owes you a lot. Tell me you signed the contract yourself. Tell me it was you and not someone else. I paused. I can never remember what I sign and, and when. It felt like I was always signing stuff. I heard Nick flick through some papers and let out a heavy sigh. You didn't, he said finally. Murray did. 
I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I couldn't understand why someone like my dad, who knew business well, would let us be so underpaid. It turned out Capital owed me $1.5 million. 1.5! One of the biggest singles of all time. And that was for producing a loan. Nick also found out that they had used money from the Beach Boys royalty account to pay for an album my dad made called The Many Moods of Murray Wilson. Well, Murray Wilson was about to experience just one fucking mood from his son. I slammed the phone down without even saying goodbye to Nick and jumped in my car. I knew where my dad was. Sunset Sound Studios, the studio where we'd cut pet sounds. He was working on a few new songs of his there. We were probably paying for those too. I burst into the studio. He was sitting there at the piano. You liar, I screamed. He couldn't have been expecting me, but he didn't miss a beat. Why, Brian, what's wrong? He asked me softly. All that money. I lost it with him again. I keep thinking about what has happened over the last few years. I was shouting, throwing stuff around. I called him a coward, a charlatan, a bad father. He barely seemed to listen. He said he was sorry. Then he turned back to the piano and played a couple notes. I just stood there and watched. He began to sing, but it wasn't really to a melody. It was kind of half-spoken. You're not gonna like this, he sang, but it's for your own good. Then he stopped and turned around. I've sold the publishing rights for all the Beach Boys songs, he said. I'm the owner of the company, and it was the right thing to do. All that money. I was stunned. Why, I asked him. My voice cracked. Because, he replied. I jumped across the piano and grabbed the front of his jacket. Why? I screamed. All those fights. He rose up and pushed me off. I did it, he yelled, because I was worried you're a spent force. A broken fucking record, literally. A loser who has lost it. That's why. I was so scared. All that blood. His face was red with anger. I flashed back to being at home in Hawthorne and receiving the belt. I felt so small again, like a child. I cowered in the corner, tears flowing from my eyes. All I could get was 700,000, he said, almost triumphantly. That money. But they were valued in the millions, I cried. Not anymore, he spat back. It would turn out that we couldn't do anything about it. He was right. He had control of the songs. I'd signed that over to him years before. In the end, Nick said the money he'd got for the rights was at least half of what we should have received. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. What happened with the money? Dad kept it all as a quote-unquote transaction fee. All that money. On the way home from the studio that day, I cried again. I heard California girls play on the car radio, and after only the first couple of bars, I pulled over. I kicked the radio over and over until it stopped working. When I got home, I took all my gold and platinum records off the wall. They never went back up.
105.4 BRIANFM is being taken over for the next 24 hours. It's time for a new voice. This is Radio D-E-N-N-I-S. And it's going to be a long, hot summer. I can't go on like this. How long have I been talking to you in here? It feels like forever. I need a break. I need to tap out. I... I don't have any more stories to tell. I... I... Hello? Is this where he's been hiding? In his head? God, it's huge in here. It's huge! My name's Dennis Wilson. Brian's my brother. But you probably covered that, right? Cool. Brian's got some stories to tell, I'm sure of that. But I have a story too. It comes from around this time as well. It involves drugs, orgies, and a serial killer. This is my tale. It all started when I was driving down the Sunset Strip. It was springtime, the air was clear, the sun was bright. I had nothing to do. Nowhere to be, I was just driving. Some nights I dream as if I'm me. I was recently divorced and I guess I was looking to start living a new type of life. Other nights I'm Dennis. I saw these two women, hitchhikers, you know. I stopped the car and they jumped in. Patricia and Ella Joe. those were their names. They were headed east, but when they realized I was a beach boy, I'm Dennis. We ended up back in my house for a milk and cookies. We talked about transcendental meditation, which was an interest we shared. They mentioned a spiritual guru they knew, this guy called Charlie. They asked if I wanted to meet him, and yeah, of course I did. I was really in all that stuff. First, I had to go down to the studio and cut something or other, so I left the girls at my house. That's how it was back then, like an open house sort of deal. But when I came back that night, I was more than a little confused. It was so strange. There was a school bus parked in my front yard. All its lights were on. It looked like it had been abandoned. As I slowly walked around it, a small man appeared. He looked like he'd been sleeping on the street. His hair was a mess, his eyes were wild. They had a quality I'll never forget. They burned, you know? I felt like when they were looking at you, they could see something else, something more than normal eyes. But they were also broken in some way, haunted even. They scared me. Those ones are the scariest. I didn't know what to say to him, so I just blurted out, Are you here to hurt me? He smiled, but his eyes stayed the same. Does it look like I am, he asked. I didn't know what to say. I felt like saying, yes. Yes, it fucking does. He dropped to the ground and started kissing my feet. It was so odd. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. Patricia and Ella Joe appeared at my door, smiling. This is Charlie, laughed Ella Joe, our guru. 
Charlie was unsettling, but alluring too. I found him fascinating. That first night we got high and spoke for hours. He told me he was both God and the devil. I kind of laughed at the time, but looking back, that turned out to be true in one way. Over the next couple weeks, I saw more and more of him and more and more of the girls. Except it wasn't just Patricia and Ella Joe. There were more where they came from. You see, Charlie had a family. That's what he called them. All women, all interested in an alternative way of living. All interested in free love. Charlie had such a hold over these women. They were basically his servants. Every day they'd wake up and wait for him. Some nights I dream. He'd make them put their hands in the shape of various symbols and tell them they were shaping the universe, that we were shaping the universe. One night we had a big party. I wanted to show Charlie and the girls off to everyone. It was a hot night. There was booze everywhere. Everyone was on acid. Charlie was chatting with Neil Young and Mike Love over at the piano. They were singing some song I didn't recognize. I think Charlie wrote it. When I walked over to join them, Neil beamed at me. This is Charlie, he said. He's an improv genius. Where did you find him? I laughed and said I found him in my front yard. Charlie cut in and said, found me at the gates of hell. We all laughed. He grabbed my hand and said it was time. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I didn't know what he meant, but he moved us into the center of the lounge area and announced to the room that it was the hour of love. He clapped his hands and all of the women, all of Charlie's followers, started to undress. I keep thinking about what has happened. Almost immediately, everyone was kissing, hugging, touching. Charlie walked around the group and handed out more acid. He walked up to Mike and offered him a tab. Mike declined and then came over to me as Patricia was trying to take my shirt off. Can I take a shower, he asked. A shower, Mike? I laughed at him. I think you might want to do that after. But he cut me off. I'm not taking part in this, he said, motioning to the orgy in front of him. It's hot and I'm sweating, and we have to get back to the studio. I was being led into a forest of limbs by Patricia. So all I said to him was, sure, but I couldn't concentrate. Who am I supposed to be? I was worried about Mike. I was worried about letting my band down. As you probably can tell, I had no intention of going to that session he was headed to. I wanted to apologize, or at least put out any fires that might have been billowing. I'm sure Brian's told you, Mike can lose his temper. I found him in the bathroom. Your friend Charlie, he said, real name, Charles Manson. God, he sounded like he was some square TV detective. You know, he spent half his life in jail, right? I rolled my eyes, but stopped halfway through because another voice answered him. Well, 
Not quite half, but almost. Manson stood at the door. He was completely naked and smiling. I'm sorry you don't want to play, Mike, he said. I'm married, Mike told him. Manson shrugged and then said, love is love. There was a silence and I thought that might be it. But Charlie seemed to change. There was a shift in him. He grew incredibly intense. He looked at me with those burning eyes. Those ones are the scariest. He walked towards Mike. You shouldn't leave the group, he whispered in Mike's ear. No, you must not leave the group. Mike got angry and told him he does whatever the fuck he likes. But as he went to walk past, Charlie put his arm out and cornered him, pushing his whole body onto him. No one leaves the group, he whispered again. I didn't know what the fuck was about to happen, but I knew these two would be like a couple of freight trains colliding if it came to blows. Mike moved his head close to Charlie's ear and nearly spat on him, saying, get your dick off my fucking clothes. He shoved him aside and strode out of the room. Charlie had his back to me, but I caught his face in the mirror. His eyes were burning so hard, I thought he might shatter the thing into pieces. Some nights I dream. A few minutes later, we were back downstairs. Other nights I'm Dennis. More guests had arrived. Carl. One of them was someone Charlie had been dying to meet. Even my dad. I remember them shaking hands. I served up introductions. Charlie, this is Columbia Records' best producer, Terry Melcher. Charlie grinned as he took his hand. I'd love to come audition for you, sir. Terry politely informed him he only lived down the road. I didn't know it then, but that meeting would be the start of one of the most horrific and famous murders in the history of this country. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up, like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh 
refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Charlie Manson stayed in my house for a while. That's what it was like back then, you know? Of course, if I knew what was going to happen, I would have made him leave, called the police, done something, anything. In those days, Charlie wanted to be a rock star. He was desperate to be one. That's why he came here. To California, I mean. He was good at it. To be honest, he wrote good songs. One from that time was called Cease to Exist. And it was, well, fine. Hardly up to the standard of what Brian was writing. Or any of us, for that matter. But it was good. He wanted to record it. And then he wanted the Beach Boys to record it. And so he did. At the time, it was like... Why not? It ended up being a B-side to a song called Bluebirds Over the Mountain. It also appeared on the 2020 album. By the time it made it onto our record, though, the song had changed. Structurally, musically, lyrically, it changed. A lot. Its name was changed. It became Never Learn Not to Love. 
When I first told Charlie we were going to record it, he was ecstatic. He saw this as his first step to becoming a rock star. When he actually heard the song, however, he wasn't so happy. I keep thinking about what has happened. The tune had been mixed and mastered and sent to my house on tape. When it arrived, I left it out for Charlie to listen to. I left to record more songs for 2020 down at the studio. But when I came back home, I could tell something was wrong. I walked in the front door, and rather than being greeted by the carnival of Charlie's family, the whole place was quiet, silent even. I walked into the living room and Charlie was sitting there all on his own, his elbows on his knees, leaning forward on the couch with his head on his thumbs, looking pensive. Where are the girls? I asked. They're upstairs, having a moment of silence, he said. A moment of silence, I asked. Yes, he said. His words were ice cold. I'm having trouble being myself. I heard someone move upstairs. Charlie jumped up and shouted, Silence! Then he marched up to me and brought his face right up to mine. Our lips were practically touching. You changed the song, he whispered. Just like he had done with Mike in the bathroom at the party. Just some of the structure, I said. I don't care about structure, he told me. You changed my words. My words are all I have, don't you see? I thought he might cry or, I don't know, have a stroke. He was speaking so intensely. I'm having trouble. I need to show Terry Melcher that I'm a musical genius. How can I do that when you changed the song? I explained that Terry, the Columbia producer Charlie had become obsessed with, wouldn't care about a Beach Boys song. I told him we could record something new, but that only made it worse. He stormed over to the couch where he picked up a white envelope and thrust it under my nose. Open it, he cried. Patricia appeared at the top of the stairs and asked if Charlie was okay. Charlie screamed at her to shut up. He was red now. His face was haunted, his eyes just burning. The envelope was almost empty, except for one thing, something fairly heavy. I opened it and straight away saw the pointed gold tip of a bullet. What is this supposed to mean? I asked. This, he said, grabbing the bullet, holding it above his head. This is for your fucking kids if you ever fuck me over again. He walked around the room, holding it above him as he spoke. I could hardly believe it. Charles Manson threatening my own children in my own house. A house he'd been staying in, rent-free. In fact, everything was free, come to think of it. We had already spent a thousand dollars alone on the shots for the gonorrhea that swept through the place. I couldn't hold my anger back. No one threatened my family like that. I jumped at him and tackled him to the floor. I heard his arm crack onto the coffee table as he fell, 
but I didn't care. I sat on top of him and grabbed that arm and bent it back as hard as I could. I wanted him to feel maximum pain. He dropped the bullet and I tried to get a punch in, but he blocked me. Patricia ran over and tried to pull me off him. I pushed her back and she ended up on the floor crying for Charlie. While I was distracted, he managed to get free from under me and I saw him grab for the bullet. I looked at his other hand, fearing he'd have a gun. Nothing, thank God. Without warning, he dove on top of me, flattening me to the floor. His breath was hot and wet in my face. He held the bullet to my temple, pushing it hard into the skin. Don't fuck me over, he screamed. Don't, don't, don't. He pushed the bullet in harder and harder. I could feel the skin breaking. I didn't say anything. I was lost in those eyes, those burning, tired eyes. Those ones are the scariest. My free hand was frantically skating around the carpet looking for something, anything to get me free. Then I felt it. The tapes. The tapes of never learn not to love. What I'm supposed to do now. They came in a pretty weighty box and it was bulky. It spanned the full reach of my fingers. I grabbed it and drove it in the back of Charlie's head. His eyes seemed to grow huge when I did that, but I didn't care. He fell to the side and I was free. Who am I supposed to be? I leapt on top of him and punched him right in the face, right in the same place that years later would sport a swastika tattoo. Patricia yelped in pain as if she had been hit. Charlie was unconscious. That was the last time I saw him face to face. A few months after that, Charlie instructed his family to go to 10,050 Cielo Drive and kill everyone there. Abigail Forrester, Volchek Frakowski, Stephen Parent, Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate, and Sharon's unborn child. They all died that night. Why 10,050 Cielo Drive, you might ask? Because that's where Terry Melcher used to live, around the time I introduced Charlie to him at that party. He never did get that audition. It's hard to get over something like that. In fact, it's impossible. I think of those six people all the time. How can I not? Some days when I go surfing, early in the morning after I've been up all night, I turn to the morning sun rising over the ocean. And I pray that their souls are at peace. It's been two days since journalist Tom Nolan got the tip. Two whole days. Once again, he walks to the corner of Fairfax Avenue and West 3rd Street, up to the shop's front door, and he knocks. Nothing. No one's inside. The lights are all off. Silence. Nolan turns around and makes his way back to where he came from, 
He sticks his small reporter's notepad back into his pants pocket. He walks the streets of West Hollywood for a while, and the city is winding down. The glow of the day is gone. Another LA night is starting to unfold, and there's a sense that anything can happen. And that sense is the only thing that prevents him from hailing a cab and calling it a night. Instead, he walks a few more blocks to the Melvin Theater. Written in large letters on the theater's marquee is the word Skamen. Shame, Nolan translates out loud. He plunks down his money and spends the next 103 minutes lost in a surreal world of horror, courtesy of the master Swedish filmmaker Igmar Bergman. When the film ends, it's almost midnight. Nolan is emotionally shook up, and the streets feel different than they did earlier that evening. Hostile, unsafe. He walks quickly, once again heading for Fairfax and Third, trying to cast the images of the film he's just seen out of his mind. And as he approaches the corner, his heart skips. He sees the lights on in the shop, and he's never seen them on before. He looks closer, and the door is open too. He's definitely never seen the door open. As he stands now on the other side of the street, he watches a man inside the shop walk past the open door. He's barely visible, and there's so little light, but he can just see it. It's him. He thinks, fuck, it's actually him, it's actually true. Seconds later, Nolan is bounding over the crosswalk and practically jumping up the curb. He stops outside and looks up at the large sign, an elongated red radish with green leaves shooting out the top. In the center, in a faded white tight, are the words, Radiant Radish. Nolan takes a beat and then walks inside. After only one step, it feels like he's back in that movie theater. It's dark inside, really dark, unlike any shop he's ever been in. He looks up and sees all the ceiling lights have been shut off, and the only light is a ghostly fluorescent glow emanating from the food bins. Nolan takes a deep breath in through his nose, and he can smell vegetables, dirt, a slight tang of mildew, and something else. Something he recognizes, but couldn't put his finger on. Pills. That was it. He can smell that stale air that seems to almost exclusively exist in large jars of pills. Nolan spins around and sees the front wall of the place adorned with jar upon jar of pills. A small ladder leads up to the ceiling, and the place is like a Victorian pharmacy. He lowers his eyes to the counter in front of the wall where he sees a large open jar, a stick of celery, and a mound of what looks like salt. Finally, his eyes come to rest on the only other person in the shop. Nolan looks at him properly for the first time, and the man's head is bowed down, fumbling with something in his hands. His long hair dangles there. He's wearing a bathrobe. It's striped, loose, pajamas on underneath. But Nolan keeps staring, and finally the man looks up. Can I help you with anything? He asks. Nolan stutters. You're, you're Brian Wilson. The man in the bathroom nods slowly. Tom Nolan, Nolan says, extending his hand, from Rolling Stone magazine. Brian doesn't offer his own hand. Instead, he explains that he's not doing interviews, but he can serve Mr. Nolan if he needs anything. B12, says the journalist. Brian runs his hands over the jars behind him as Nolan watches, unable to take his eyes off one of the greatest living pop stars just standing there in a bathrobe. All he can think is, three years ago, Brian Wilson changed the world with good vibrations, and now he's working here? Nolan heard the rumors. He got the tip, and that's why he kept coming back to see it with his own two eyes. But he never imagined it would actually be true. I came yesterday and earlier tonight, Nolan says, but you were closed. We open when I want, Brian replies, 
grabbing a couple of tablets from a jar that definitely isn't B12. He tosses them up in the air and catches both in his mouth, and then he swallows hard. He pulls a small bottle off the shelf and puts it on the counter. He looks at Nolan. You get a call? A call, Nolan asks. A call from your doctor, Brian says. Well now, unless there's a call, well, you you can't. Brian shrugs. Nolan thinks it's a joke, but Brian's stare indicates otherwise. Nolan makes his excuses and after an awkward silence decides to leave the store, trying to work out if after watching Skamen he slipped into some strange alternate reality. His exit is interrupted by Brian who says, I used to be Mr. Everything, you know, jumping on jets, one city to another, producing, writing, arranging, singing, planning, teaching, and to the point where I had no peace of mind and no chance to actually sit down and think or even rest, so that's why I'm in this, and he motions to the bathrobe. Nolan smiles. This, Brian says, pointing to the store. This is for me, and for me alone. They called me a genius, but I'm not a genius. I'm just a hardworking guy. Nolan doesn't know quite what to say. He just leaves his card on the counter and tells Brian to give him a call the next time he wants to talk about his career. And then he steps out into the LA night, and once again, Brian Wilson is alone. When Nolan gets home that night, he listens to his battered copy of Good Vibrations, but it doesn't sound the same. All he can think about is that man he saw earlier in that bathrobe. He can't get the image out of his head. And now the song playing on his stereo seems to have lost some of its joy. And the more he listens, the more the joy is slowly torn from the song, leaving behind so much blood on the tracks. Blood on the Tracks is produced by Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Jake Brennan. Also executive produced by Brady Sadler. Zeth Lundy is lead editor and producer. This episode was written by Ben Burrow. Mixing and sound design by Colin Fleming. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. This season features Chris Anzalone as the voice of Brian Wilson. This episode featured Spencer Grala as the voice of Dennis Wilson. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. Follow Double Elvis on Instagram at DoubleElvis and on Twitch at DisgracelandTalks. And you can talk to me, per usual, on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today.
Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th. 2024. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR. The Motor Racing Network.